are going to be doing all of Mark 14 and 15 today. I know, I am just absolutely bonkers, y'all. Um, I, so I'm not going to read to you all of 14 and 15 like I normally do. I'm not going to read to you all of the text, just one portion, because if I did read to you all of 14 and 15, that would be all that we do, which you might say, good. But uh, uh, I'm going to read to you from Mark 15, 33 to 38. And then we'll jump in. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemi sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Well, we have been in the book of Mark since January, Okay. Uh, that's a long time to be in a book, but I actually shortened it for you. Most people take a year to a year and a half, and so, I don't know, you can be mad at me or say thank you, either way. Um, but it has been a joy to walk through this gospel with you, and today we have finally arrived. Everything in the gospel of Mark has been pointing to this moment, the moment when Jesus will accomplish what he has planned to do since the beginning of creation. For weeks now, Jesus has been telling his disciples, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And we've seen him arrive in Jerusalem. We have seen him take over the temple. We've seen him, seen him pick a fight with the religious leaders. And today we're going to see Jesus betrayed. We're going to see him put on trial and we're going to see his crucifixion. And so I have two goals today. As I mentioned, we will be covering all of Mark 14 and 15, and I know that's a lot, but as I mentioned before, the reason we're taking these big chunks of Scripture is because I want you to see the story. I think the church is really bad at gospel fluency, just being able to communicate the story of the gospel when you run into a family member or a non-believer. And so I want us to see the whole story, and I want you to see how it all fits together. We, we could have taken each little moment and spent a year and a half in, these, in this book, but Mark puts these moments together for a reason. And looking at the story of Jesus' death with the bird's eye view, it's going to help us understand the providential plan of God. And that's what I want you to see first today, that woven within these two chapters, you see the ultimate sovereign plan of God, that everything from your Old Testament talks about this moment. All of the story, the entire Bible talks to this moment. The Old Testament flows into these chapters and the New Testament flows out of these chapters. That it all talks about this moment. So the first thing I want to show you is just that scripture itself talks about the death of Jesus. And the second thing that I want us to see is just if you would receive it, is just to see the faithfulness of your God. Faithfulness of your God, that as the people of God, we were separated from him because of sin, but he has come to reconcile and restore all that is lost 
and the payment for that reconciliation was his blood. And I want us to feel that reality today because it's, it's because of his blood that we are made alive. So with that said, let's jump into Mark chapter 14 and verse 1 and get ready because we're going to go. Uh, verse 1, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. So at this point, you've seen it coming. The religious leaders, they've had enough of Jesus. Jesus had hurt them financially. He had embarrassed them in the temple. He had pronounced judgment. Uh, In the parable he told in the temple just a couple days earlier, he told them, hey, God's going to remove you as the tenant. He's going to remove you over the vineyard. And then he said, the stone that's been rejected will become the cornerstone. And I can guarantee that they took that as a threat. It was a threat to their power. It was a threat to their influence. And so now they want to kill Jesus. The only question is, how? How are they going to do it? They have a problem. It's Passover, which means there's around a million people in Jerusalem. And they know that Jesus has gathered a very large Following. So they're smart enough to know that if they try to arrest him in broad daylight, that's not going to go well with the crowds. The crowd might start a riot. And if they start a riot, then Rome could get involved, which is going to be bad news for the religious leaders. So they, they have to play this a very specific way. They decide to arrest Jesus by stealth, and they aren't exactly sure how to do that. But if you jump down to verse 10, they find their solution in the betrayer, the disciple, Judas. It said, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the religious leaders want to arrest Jesus by stealth and secret, and Judas says, I can take you to a place where he is alone, isolated, and vulnerable. And what's stunning about how Mark lays this out, is that you get, him, you get that they want him dead in verse 2, and then you get the mode in which they're going to do it in verse 10, right? But then you have what seems to be a random insert in Mark in verses 3 through 9. This is one of those classic Markan sandwiches that we have talked about, where Mark will begin to tell one story, interrupt it with another, only to conclude the story at the bottom. So what's the point with verses 3 through 9? What you see in verses 3 through 9 is a contrast. It's a contrast. You have the leadership in verse 1 and 2 who want to kill him uh, because he's a threat to their power. And then in verse 10, you have Judas who is driven to betray Jesus by greed. And then right in the middle, you get a story about a woman who understands what's about to happen. And in one moment, she displays worship and honor to the king who would die. She's not looking to kill him. She's not looking to betray him. She's looking to honor him. It says in verse three, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. An alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard was a perfume that was made in India. It was sealed in a bottle, and it could only be opened by smashing it. It cost 300 denarii. That's a year's wage. So think about it this way. Consider taking a $50,000 bottle of wine and opening it at dinner, right? That's a significant 
moment. It's a big deal. You better feel honored when that wine is open. So in verse one, you've got people who want to kill him. Verse 10, you've got people who want to betray him. And right in the middle, you have a woman who will bring him the very best that she has. The very best thing. This thing was probably a family heirloom. It's the very most precious, the best thing that she has. Mark is showing us. It feels like chaos. People want to kill him. People want to betray him. But there are some who see him, who worship him. And she brings the very best that she has. Some of the dinners start to criticize her. They say, hey, you could have taken that money. You could have given it to the poor. And Jesus shuts it down and he says, hey, look, you will always have the poor with you. But me, you will not have me much longer. He says in verse eight, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And he says, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Remember, Jesus had been telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And so far, only a few people have really understood what that means, right? We've talked about it. I mean, you had the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. You had the blind man, Bartimaeus, uh, in Mark 10. And then you have here. This woman understands what's about to happen. And he tells them, hey, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you're going to hear her story, which is fascinating because what's happening in this moment? The gospel is being proclaimed and we're talking about her, right? Sovereignty of God. Now, look at verse 12, Mark 14. In verse 12, we enter the final day of Jesus' life. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So before we move any further, we need to make sure we understand what the Passover uh, is. The Passover was a celebration of the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt. You can read that story in Exodus, Egypt had held them captive and God sent plague after plague into Egypt. And finally, God said, I will send my judgment on you. I will bring my wrath and the only people who will not be subject to my wrath are those who will take an innocent lamb and slaughter it. So God told them, hey, take an innocent lamb, slaughter it, drain its blood and put the the blood of that innocent, innocent lamb on your doorpost. And it was a symbol that your house and your family is covered by the blood of an innocent one. And if your family was covered, then God's wrath would pass over you. Now, for those who did not submit to this covering, their firstborn son was dead before the night was over. They met God's judgment. For everyone else, they met God's mercy. So the Passover was a celebration that the death of an innocent one ensured that God's wrath would pass over. And so don't miss the irony here as we walk into this last day. It's not really irony. It's more like divine design, right? God has ordained that an innocent one is slain. Why? So that God's judgment and wrath would pass over sin. And anyone who submitted to the covering of the innocent one would experience the mercy of God, except this time it wasn't a lamb. It was God himself. It was God in the flesh. And so as we walk through the rest of this, please understand that if you have put your faith in Christ, that means that God's wrath has passed over your sin. You are, because of the innocent one, because his blood covers you, you no longer find judgment 
but you find mercy. The highlight of the Jewish calendar was the Passover. That is what everything pointed to. And Jesus has this whole thing planned for his disciples. Church history knows it as the Last Supper. And in this Last Supper, you will see Jesus drop on them multiple just bombshells that are going to change the disciples forever. And ultimately, it's going to change us forever. Look at verse 17. It says, when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And so Jesus begins the Passover meal. Hey guys, no big deal. One of you is going to betray me, right? I mean, that's a fun way to start off a dinner. Um, and they're all confused. Notice that no one shouts, yeah, Judas, right? No one shouts that because wolves are typically pretty good at hiding amongst the sheep. And then he says this in verse 21. It's probably one of the most debated and also terrifying verses of the New Testament. He says, for the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says, this is all by divine design. He's saying the scripture said that this would happen. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he lifted his heel against me. The Old Testament said that this would happen, that the Messiah would be betrayed. Jesus is not surprised by this. But then Jesus says, but woe to him who does it. And you get the mystery in this moment of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This is all according to the plan of God, but the person who betrays God, that person will not go unpunished. And as Jesus proceeds through the Passover meal, he does something pretty weird. I don't know how else to describe it because what Jesus does with the disciples, they would have thought was strange. I mean, the disciples had grown up year after year participating in the Passover meal. They would have been familiar with this. It had a specific script to it. There were four courses and four cups. And no one ever dared to change that script. The meal proceeded a certain way, and you did not change it. Well, at one point, the leader of the meal was supposed to hold up a piece of bread and say, this is the bread of our affliction. They would be reflecting back to their time as slaves in Egypt. And Jesus, as the head of the feast, he picks up bread, and instead of saying the pre-written script, he changes it. Verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Jesus takes a tradition that they have done for hundreds of years, and he turns it upside down. He says, this isn't the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. This is my body that is breaking. And he gives it to his disciples so that they would partake of his broken body. At one point during the meal, the head of the feast was supposed to hold up a cup of wine and say, may the all-merciful one make us worthy of the day of the Messiah. It was their way of saying, God, prepare us for the day that our Messiah comes to save us. And in verse 23, it says, he took a cup. And we, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenants, which is poured out for many. He changes the script again. The day of the Messiah has arrived. He doesn't say, hey, may we be ready for the, for the Messiah. He holds up the cup and says, this is my blood. This is my blood poured out. He speaks of the covenant 
a binding relationship, that the blood is going to seal you with me. Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in this new covenant, God says that he will write his law on our hearts and he will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. We're supposed to think of Isaiah 53, where it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are what? We are healed. Like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that Jesus stands before them, and he says, this Passover meal, this is about me. That's what he says. That's why 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. There was a fourth cup that would close the meal. This cup was called the cup of consummation. It was a symbol of the day that God would be reunited and reconciled with his people once and for all. And Jesus takes that cup, and he says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when it is new in the kingdom of God. He picks up that cup and he says, not yet. The day was almost there, so he waits. In verse 26, they sing a hymn and go to the Mount of Olives. The hymn they would have sung was from the Hallel Psalms. It would have been Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And the last psalm they would have sung was Psalm 118. And I just want you to notice this. Have you ever read through Psalm 118 in light of considering of what they were singing as they were about to go to the cross? Psalm 118.20, as Jesus is sitting there with them singing this psalm, they sing, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. They sing in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And, And look, think about this. You know, this is the day, this is, sorry, I'm not your worship leader, but... You know where that comes from? They're standing there with Jesus right before they go to Gethsemane and they sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 27, they end that time by singing, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You can't make this stuff up. This is by divine design. And as they walk up to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them, hey, guys, no big deal. You're all going to ditch me. So he tells them. He says, you're all going to run. You're, you're going to scatter. He quotes Zechariah 13, 7, and he says, the scriptures say that I will be struck and you're going to run. But what's interesting, and I love about this text, he says, but I'll meet you in Galilee. That's what he tells them. He says, I'll meet you in Galilee. He basically says, hey, guys, I'm about to die. You're going to ditch me. But what I want you to remember is to meet me in Galilee. I'll meet you there, which had to be confusing for them. Peter pops up, says, hey, I'll never run. I'll never ditch you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, before the morning comes, you will deny me. They go to Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And in verse 35, it says, going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark uses the most extreme language available to help us understand that in this moment, Jesus is very distressed. distressed. And it's not death that distresses him. 
So the question is, if he's not afraid of death, what's he afraid of? Well, he prays that the cup would be removed from him. In Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, when someone is given a cup to drink, it was the cup of the wrath of God. What Jesus is afraid of is not death. He is afraid of the cost of being the ransom for many. That we have to understand that Jesus has been with his father since the beginning. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have enjoyed a perfect union together forever. And in this moment, he must prepare his mind to take on the wrath of God, which was what was required of him in order to be the sacrifice for our sins, that he would take our place in judgment. And in order for that to happen, he had to be separated from the Trinity. To endure the wrath of God means being alienated. And he's never been separated from his father before. He says, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. There is nowhere in any Jewish literature where someone calls God Abba. It just didn't happen. You didn't say that. It would have been offensive to a Jew to use a name like that that means daddy, to use such a casual name to address the holy God. That didn't happen. But Mark gives us this moment where Jesus, he says, dad, all things are possible through you. If there's any way, if there's any way. But he says, not my will, but yours. And he submits. And in verse 42, he says, arise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And Judas shows up. He had told the religious leaders, hey, the guy that I kiss, he's the guy that you're looking for. It was dark. And so it's in verse 45, it says, when he came, he went up to him at once and said, rabbi. And he kissed him. To kiss someone was a symbol of intimacy. To call him a rabbi was a gesture of respect. So Judas takes the intimacy and respect he has with his Messiah, and he betrays it. They grab Jesus in verse 48, and he tells them, Hey, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple. He says, but the, let the scriptures be fulfilled. That word robber, it's probably better translated as insurrectionist. Someone leading a revolt? Are you coming to me like I'm leading a revolt? I was with the, in the temple with you. Every day you saw me teaching, but now in the middle of the night you come. And he says, let the scriptures be filled. This is his way of saying, hey, I want you to know this is all going according to the plan of God. But I want you to think about what it is that you're doing. What do your actions say about yourself? That's what he's saying. Verse 50, it says they all fled. They all run. It's like he said, he said they would. Verse 51 gets its own pericope moment, if you will. Uh, a young man runs away naked, which as we talked about, could be Mark inserting him into the story. It could also be a reference to Amos 2.16, where Amos talks about how on the day of the Lord, the young men will flee naked. And as Jesus enters into his mission, he enters it alone. Everyone's left him. And at this point, we're in the middle of the night. It's past midnight. And we will see Jesus go to a civil trial or a religious trial, a civil trial, and then we'll see him be crucified. And here's what's fascinating about this next section we're about to enter in. Like a lamb before his slaughter, Jesus falls silent. In the remaining verses, you will hear three sentences from Jesus. We're meant to think of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The Sanhedrin, the leadership, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they gather in the middle of the night, and they put Jesus on trial, and they have a problem in verse 55. It says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another one not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, they did not agree. See, the problem is they arrest Jesus, but they have no charge. The irony is they already have their verdict. We want him dead, and now they have to come up with a crime to charge him with. In Jewish law, you needed two testimonies to agree in order to convict someone. And the problem is they can't get two people to agree with the same testimony, even when they're false witnesses. They don't agree. They can't get their story straight. And so finally, the high priest, Caiaphas, who's watching this, he's meant to be acting as judge. He steps down into the role of prosecutor. And in verse 60, it says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And it says that Jesus remained silent. Jesus doesn't have to say anything here. He doesn't have to. They have to prove a crime, and they can't. And so the high priest asked Jesus a direct question. He says in verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And here's the insanity of this moment. The religious leadership had tried so hard to get a charge against Jesus, and they can't. And so in frustration, the high priest asked Jesus to indict himself. Jesus doesn't have to answer this question. He doesn't. He can be silent, and if he did, they would have no case. They would have no case against Jesus. They would have no case to bring before Rome. This trial would stop. He would escape death. And you know what? Other than the moment in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples where Peter says, hey, I believe that you are the Christ, Jesus has been pretty quiet about his messiahship, only with those he's closest to. But here in this moment, in front of the religious leadership and the crowd, Jesus will declare his identity because he knows what must happen. He does not stop this trial. He says in verse 62, I am. Which, by the way, you know, people always ask, why, didn't, why was Jesus so, so quiet with his messiahship? Why did he tell people not to tell anyone? Because Galatians says at the right time, at the right time, this was the moment. He knew what must happen. And in order for that to happen, this moment has to happen. He says, I am the Christ. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He combines Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, and he says, you bet I am. In Matthew's gospel, he tells the high priest, we talked about this last week, he says, I am, and from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He says, you will see me exalted. I will go through the clouds to the ancient of days, and he will give me power and dominion. So, Mr. High Priest Caiaphas, you think that you are judge, but really, I'm your judge. What's ironic? Do you know what the book of Hebrews calls Jesus? Matt read it earlier. The great high priest. He's reminding them, I'm in charge. This is all according to plan. He doesn't just say that he's the Christ. He says, I am and you're the one on trial here. And in verse 63, they have all that they need. The high priest tore his garments. They would, he would do that if it was blasphemy, if you heard blasphemy. And he said, what further witnesses do we need you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? 
and they condemned him deserving death. At no point did they stop to consider, is he telling the truth? They spit on him, they hit him, they mock him. And as the book of Mark continues, Peter, who was talking a big game, he denies him. And at this point, Jesus is really alone. And in verse 1 in Mark 15, it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The religious trial was probably somewhere around 2 to 3 a.m. This is probably around 6 a.m. They've kept Jesus up all night. Judea was a subject nation under Roman control of a prefect. That prefect was Pilate. And so the reality is the religious leaders can't just kill Jesus. They can't do it. They don't have that kind of power. So they pass Jesus off to the Roman authorities to have them kill him. And so in verse two, he's in front of Pilate. And Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? It says he answered him, you've said so. (laughs) What's interesting is that the religious leaders, they don't come to Pilate and say, hey, Jesus is accused of claiming that he's the Christ. Because Pilate would have said, that's a religious matter. You handle that on your own time. So what they tell Pilate is he's claiming to be king, and that is a political issue. That's a Rome issue. You can't challenge Caesar like that. That's sedition, which is a civil matter. And what's ironic and fascinating about this, the Jewish people wanted a military messiah who would oppose Rome, who would oppose Rome and lead them to freedom, right? But they bring him to trial, claiming that he's a military leader. It's ironic. Pilate looks at Jesus and he's amazed. He's never seen someone carry themselves like Jesus does in the face of death. And so Pilate finds a loophole. Rome had told the Jewish people, hey, every Passover, we will liberate someone for your honor and uh, in your honor for your liberation from Egypt. And so at Mark 15, 7, Pilate tries to fix the situation. He says, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder... In the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered to them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas. And said, essentially, Pilate realizes, hey, Jesus isn't an insurrectionist. They just don't like him. So, he offers a guy who actually did try to cause an insurrection, Barabbas. Barabbas had murdered trying to overthrow Rome. So Pilate's thought is, if you're really concerned about people trying to claim themselves as king, then here is Barabbas. And he sets up in front of them two heroes. One hero who came in grace and truth. He healed the sick. He loved the poor. He led with compassion. And he called people to repentance. And on the other side, you have a Jewish hero who had murdered and attempted to overthrow Rome. And he puts them in front of the crowd and he says, which king do you want? A king of grace and truth or a king of violence and power? And the crowd screams, we want Barabbas. So Pilate says, what shall I do with the king of the Jews then? (laughs) They cried out, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted louder, crucify him. And so Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, releases Barabbas. It says they scourged Jesus. Mark doesn't go into details about what it means to be scourged, but it was a whipping with a whip that had multiple ends filled with bone chips and metal. 
The Jewish historian Josephus gives us details about two different scourgings where he said by the time that they were done, the back would be so filleted that you could see the bone and internal organs. And after being scourged, Pilate sends them away to be crucified. Verse 21, they compel Simon and Cyrene to help Jesus with the cross. They bring him to a place called Golgotha. Verse 23, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, which was a narcotic. Jesus doesn't take it. Verse 24, it says they crucified him and divided his garments. What's interesting about this section, Mark doesn't go into the details about what a crucifixion is, right? But Roman crucifixion was not efficient. It was designed to be a show. How do we inflict the most amount of pain and the most amount of shame on a human being so that everyone watching would never dare to go against us again? It was designed so that that person's death would be so brutal that anyone who would ever think to go against Rome would think twice about it. They would nail you to a piece of wood by a public road so that everyone would see you. They would strip you naked. You know, there's a lot of statues and images of Jesus with a loincloth. He maybe, not, he maybe didn't have a loincloth on. Some people believe that they gave him one because he's Jewish and they wanted to honor him, but we don't know. Typically, they would, you would be naked. The nails would pierce you in such a way that if you needed to breathe, you would have to push up in order to get air. It was just an awful way to die. But Mark doesn't go into all that. He talks about how they casted lots in verse 24 and how the crowd mocked him and wagged their heads. And you have to ask the question, why does he give those specific details? You're meant to recall Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written hundreds of years earlier. Mark 15, 24, they crucified him and divided his garments casting lots for them. Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Mark 15, 29, and those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads. I want you to consider a verse from the New Testament. Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What we must understand is all of this is happening only because Jesus has willed it to happen. I mean, think about it. With the muscles that he sustains, if Colossians is true, with the muscles that he sustains, they use those muscles to put him on the cross. They use the moisture in their mouths that he created, the moisture that he holds together to spit on him. They nail him with metal that he spoke into existence on a piece of wood that he created. This is all by divine design. And Mark is giving you details found in Psalm 22 because you're supposed to remember this is by design. This is on purpose. This is the plan of God. And in verse 33, it says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness. Really think about that. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour uh, to the ninth hour would be from noon to three o'clock. That's a miracle. It doesn't get dark at noon. Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. All of scripture talks about this day. Verse 34, it says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, let me sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? 
He quotes Psalm 22. There are many who believe that he quoted all of Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows the answer. This must happen. And the cup that he had feared falls. In that moment, the wrath of God falls on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sin For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The perfect one, the sinless one, took on the judgment that belonged to us. 1 Corinthians 6 says you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. That we deserve the wrath of God, but Christ bought us out of that debt with his own life. And in verse 35, they think he's calling to Elijah for help. They don't have J's in Greek or Hebrew. And so Elijah sounds a lot like Eloi. He says, Eloi, Eloi. And they think he's calling out for Elijah. Elijah was known as the patron saint of lost causes. And so they're mocking him in this moment. They give him wine on a sponge not to help him so that they can hear him keep yelling. In verse 37, Jesus will make a declaration. Mark says he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The other gospels will tell us what that cry was, that he yelled, it is finished. What he had came to do, he has done. That he has taken on our sin as the Passover lamb and the curtain tears from top to bottom. There were two curtains in the temple, one outside the Holy of Holies that separated and, and one that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner court. Most people believe it was that second curtain that was torn, but regardless, everyone agrees it is God declaring that this system, this sacrificial system, it was done. The ultimate atonement had happened. It's a symbol of a new age, of a new covenant. Covenant, no more do you sacrifice lambs to cover and atone for your sin. The lamb, one and only lamb, has been slain. And the gospel is now free to be proclaimed throughout the nations. The fact that it's torn from top to bottom is to show that no man could have done this. Only an act of God could do that. It was common with crucifixion that if you were crucified, you didn't get a burial. It wasn't a thing. The only people that got crucified were people who defied Rome. Typically, the body would just hang there to decompose or for animals to eat it. But in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea asked to bury the body of Jesus. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It says he took courage because to ask for the body of Jesus could be seen as an act of defiance against Rome. And he encouraged, says, no, I want that body. Jesus is putting a stone, uh, a tomb. A stone is rolled in front of it to seal it. And in verse 47, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We get that detail for next week. Let me just give you a couple things. Final thoughts. First, my prayer is that you would feel in your bones, you would feel the links that God went to punish sin and to forgive us. We often underestimate how deep the stain of sin goes, that we are at a total loss without Christ. Make no mistake, our sin put Jesus on that cross and we should feel that reality. Jesus told his father, if there is any way 
anyway, let this cup pass. There wasn't any other way. Atonement for my sin, for your sin, required the brutal murder of God in the flesh. And so on one hand, you see the justice of God, that sin must be punished. The wrath of God could be poured out on any of us and we wouldn't have an argument to stand on on why that shouldn't happen. Justice demands payment. Yet on the other hand, our God loves us so much that in his providence, every moment was planned. Everything went to this moment. And in his providence, he made a way to take that payment on himself. In his mercy, God came himself and died. He took that cup for you and for me. And that should drive us to our knees as the people of God. To see the grace of God and the mercy of God and light of our sin. So which leads me to my last thing. How should we respond? How do you respond to this? I just went through so much stuff, and it's so heavy. Every moment you could spend hours on, how are we to respond? Mark actually tells us in verse 39, he tells us how we should respond. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. We get the appropriate response from the eye, through the eyes of a Roman soldier that as he watched Jesus die, he says, that was the Son of God. And he falls to his knees. So my prayer is that in the next few moments, in the weeks ahead, maybe the years ahead, is that our affections would be rightly, rightly stirred in the midst of the reality that Jesus was the Son of God and he died according to the plan of God, the plan that secured our salvation. But here's the reality. You know, I think when we do like Good Friday and stuff, it's, it's appropriate at times to leave in mourning and sadness. But here is the reality. The story does not end there. Come back next week. Jesus seals our eternal fate by beating death, and just like he does with our dead souls, he's made alive. And that's our story.